Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 248. Today, a very serious topic and a very unserious topic. Should people ever be excommunicated from the church? Plus, stay away from Hebrew caves. So, hello, friends. Happy Monday to you. Warning. I'm about to engage in some sophomoric humor, thus upholding my theory that all men never fully leave fifth grade. And then we're going to swerve back onto the road to a most uh, ice water in the face sober topic. So just prepare for a jarring thing as we go forward. The great thing about us going through 1 Samuel is that I don't have to write many cold introductions to the show. I can just use something from 1 Samuel because there's always something interesting or strange or outrageous to talk about. Today is one of the best we've had to this point. So when I say King David, what are you picturing in your mind right now? Are you picturing the killing of Goliath? Maybe sitting on his throne regally. Maybe you're observing, uh, seeing him observe Bathsheba and then falling into sin, which of course we know David did. Or maybe you see him writing the Psalms while attending to his father's sheep. And there's a lot of acceptable answers. And I want to give you another one today that the one I'm thinking about when I think of King David today. I'm thinking about a man in a cave sneaking up on another man who is in the act of, uh, well, pooping. Now, I thought about using the word defecating here, but that scientific word just sounds so much worse to me. So anyway, before you tune me out, hang on, hang on. Let me say, I'm not being crazy here. This really happens in the Bible in our first Samuel chapter today. King Saul is out leading his men in an attempt to kill David. David and his men are hiding in a cave. Saul just happens upon that cave that he's hiding in when he needs to uh, cover his feet, and he goes into the cave. Now, I should note here that if you read in the King James Version, you'll see that's what Saul does. He goes into the cave to cover his feet. Covering your feet is a euphemism for pooping, because that's what your robe does when you do that act back in the day. So David's men see what is happening and whisper to him, hey, this is your big chance, you can kill him. And David sneaks over and, well, actually, you're just going to have to wait until we read the passage to hear what happens. Our other passages for the day include Psalm 39, Ezekiel 3, and 1 Corinthians 5. And our focus passage is dead, sober, and serious. And this introduction has, you know, been all potty humor all the time. So the transition between the two is quite difficult for most normal adults, such as my mostly serious wife. But For fifth graders trapped in an adult's body like myself, hey, no problem, it's very easy. Excommunication is a Catholic word that I intentionally chose for the title of this podcast because it is a very evocative word with lots of power. It's not itself a biblical word, and at least the way the Roman Catholics do, it's not really exactly a biblical concept, but it does refer to a church disfellowshipping a person or booting them from membership to be more crass. In the modern Catholic church, if one is excommunicated, they still are supposed to go to church. They're supposed to, supposed to go to mass. But there are certain activities like partaking of the Eucharist that they cannot participate in until they are de-excommunicated, which I don't think is the official term, but I like it, so I'm going to use it. When somebody in a Protestant church, on the other hand, is removed from membership, in most cases, it just means that that particular person just can't go back to that particular church, unless, you know, the leadership leaves or changes their mind. 
but they could always go to a different church or a different denomination or, you know, usually just go down the road, right? So surely kicking a person out of a church isn't a biblical activity, is it? It just seems so harsh and kind of mean. And don't we want everybody to go to church? Well, let's read 1 Corinthians 5, our focus passage, and see what the Word of God tells us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. It is actually reported that there is sexually sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation, the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of insincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Wow, that is pretty pointed, shall we say. So here's the situation in 1 Corinthians 5. A church member was sexually sinning by sleeping with his father's wife. Now, I don't think this means his mother. Otherwise, it would say his mother. I think it means his stepmother. But the church was tolerating it. And Paul says, shouldn't you be sad and filled with grief about this and, you know, remove from your congregation the one who did this? And then in verse 5, he says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And by now we should be saying, wow, this is really, really serious. Hand somebody over to Satan? Holy cow. Now, this tells us that there are some sins that warrant removing people from membership in the church. But what's the point? To consign them to hell? To punish them and make them suffer? No, says Paul. The point is redemptive, even in this most serious of disciplines. Paul says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, some might object that this seems kind of judgmental, but to this objection, Paul says, there is a time to judge those who are inside the church, And he also says that there is not a time, no time to judge those outside of the church. He says, what business is of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So is there ever a time to put people out of the church? Well, yes, there is, as harsh as that sounds. But again, the focus is on eternity. The focus is on salvation. The focus is on saving somebody who is in danger of death sobering them up so that they would repent and turn to God. Now, if you ask my personal experience, I've been in pastoral ministry for a little over 25 years now. 
And there has been one time in 25 years where uh, myself and the leaders of the church thought that there was a situation where we should engage in this kind of discipline. And I could tell you the situation, but there's no need for that. I will just tell you it was particularly egregious and uh, just really rough. And, and something terrible was done, not to children, but done in front of children. And uh, we approached it from a very serious and sober-minded place of church discipline. Um, and uh, it was hard. It, it was gut-wrenchingly hard. I think it ended up okay. Uh, but man, that was hard to go through. Now, there's been other times where uh, we've participated in church discipline, but I'm talking about a really serious level uh, of church discipline. There's really been only been one time I've been faced with that. But the fact of the matter is it's a very biblical thing even though it's very rarely practiced in the church today. And so here's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We've talked about him before. He was pastor of a very faithful uh, and godly church in England, uh, one of my heroes in writing and pastoring. Here's him on church discipline and removing somebody from membership, which, according to him, is very neglected in the time he wrote, which is like 25 years ago, and even more so neglected now. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, When did you last hear any reference from a Christian pulpit to the subject of discipline? How often have you heard sermons or addresses on the subject? The word has almost gone right out of existence, and what it stands for and represents has fallen into disuse. And unfortunately, not only is church discipline neglected, but there are numbers of people who would even try to justify the neglect, and it is because of this that I want to go fully into the subject. Now, it is on scriptural grounds that I suggest that discipline should be exercised. Take the passage in Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be put unto thee as a heathen and a publican. Those are the words of our Lord himself, says Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Then again, in Romans 16, 17, we read, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. And discipline is the whole theme of 1 Corinthians 5, which ends with these words. Therefore, put away from among yourselves the wicked person. Nothing could be more explicit than that. And we have it again in 2 Corinthians 2, especially verses 5 to 10, where Paul talks about receiving back a man who has been disciplined. And again in 2 Thessalonians 3, where he gives instructions as to what should be done with members of the church who are living disorderly lives. Then in Titus 3.10, there is this explicit command, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. This teaching is also to be found, as we saw earlier, in 2 John 10. And of course, in the various letters to the individual churches in the book of Revelation, there are exhortations on the exercise of discipline. But in spite of that, there are those who often try to justify the absence or the lack of discipline in the local church. And strangely enough, there are many who do so in terms of the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. You must not discipline Christians, they say. If you try to exercise discipline and to put people out of the church, then you are contravening our Lord's own instructions. For when the servant said, Shall we put up these tares and destroy them? The master said, No, lest you uproot the wheat at the same time. Let them grow together until the harvest. 
Furthermore, for exactly the same reason, some people object to any separation of Christian people from what may be regarded as an apostate church. But this is a grievous misinterpretation of Scripture, says Lloyd-Jones, because the parable of the tares obviously does not refer to the church, but to the kingdom. All the parables in Matthew 13 are parables of the kingdom, and you may remember that we've pointed out before the church and the kingdom are not identical. The church is one expression of the kingdom, but the kingdom of God is bigger than the church. And of course, our Lord himself explicitly says in his own interpretation of this parable that the field in which the wheat and the tares are sown is not the church, but the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. So the parable of the tares has no bearing upon the question of discipline within the local church. It's a picture of the whole world, which, since it belongs to God, can in a general sense be regarded as his kingdom. But within the world, there are two groups, those who are Christians who belong to the eternal kingdom and those who belong to the devil. So I agree, of course, with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones there. There is a time for church discipline, and discipline is good. We've talked about it before. Punishment is, uh, the kind of the goal of punishment is to inflict pain and to uh, maybe memorably reinforce a truth. And there's a time for punishment too. But discipline is what, according to the Bible, God does with sons. It's a sign of being loved that you and I are disciplined. Am I disciplined? You better believe it. Frequently, I'm disciplined by the Lord. And discipline is a good thing. It's not meant to hurt. It's meant to help. So should we discipline in the church? Absolutely. Should a good football coach discipline? You bet he should. Discipline is a good thing. And we should embrace it when it's done right with the goal of the redemption of our souls. We all need discipline. Well, let's continue to our passage, jarring back into the realm of the Slightly sophomoric, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Paul, Saul, took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, so they said to him, Look! This is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to the men, As the Lord is my witness, I would never do do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. And after that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of people who say, Look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you, and I said, I will not lift my hand against my Lord, since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. 
My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, Is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then David went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Psalm chapter 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my way so that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me as I mused a fire burned. I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor, Selah. Yes, a person goes out about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all of my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I am speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am here with you as an alien, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with this scroll I am giving you. So I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or a difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to the many peoples of unintelligible speech or a difficult language whose words you cannot understand. No doubt, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not want to listen to you because they do not want to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hard-hearted and hard-headed. Look, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I have made your forehead like a diamond, harder than flint. Don't be afraid of them or discouraged by the look on their faces, though they are a rebellious house. Next, he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully to all my words that I speak to you and take them to heart. Go to your people, the exiles, and speak to them. Tell them, this is what the Lord God says, whether they listen or refuse to listen. The Spirit then lifted me up, and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me. Bless the glory of the Lord in his place. With the sound of the living creature's wings brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound, the Lord lifted me up and took me away. 
I left in bitterness and in an angry spirit, and the Lord's hand was on me powerfully. I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who were living by the Kabar Canal, and I sat there among them, stunned for seven days. Now at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but you do not warn him, you don't speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. Now, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, and I put a stumbling block in front of him, he will die. If you did not warn him, he will die because of his sin, and the righteous acts he did will not be remembered. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn the righteous person that he should not sin, and yet he does not sin, he will indeed live because he listened to your warning, and you will have rescued yourself. The hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, Get up, go out of the plain, and I will speak with you there. So I got up and went out to the plain. The Lord's glory was present there, like the glory I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell face down. The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. He spoke with me and said, Go shut yourself inside your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth and you will be mute and unable to be a mediator for them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Let the one who listens, listens, and the one who refuses, refuse, for they are a rebellious house. And friends, may you and I not be a rebellious house. Instead, may we walk in the ways of the Lord. And when we do, he will bless us. Good day and Godspeed.